Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Every week, it's my goal to share a story of someone's journey through their life and financial vineyard. We take you from their roots to the journey of their vines and the influences in the air that have helped craft their delicious lives. Like wine, life and finances have different palates that should be celebrated and not judged. Today's guest that's gonna help us not judge is Lindsay Johnson. Lindsay was amazing to talk with. She currently serves as the president of the U.S. Mortgage Insurance, which stands for, uh, you'll hear me refer to USMI, which is the nation's largest private mortgage insurance association. You're gonna learn some things about uh, PMI, as a lot of people have heard it called, that uh, are mysteries. Many people don't understand it. Many people don't have a clue how it works. And Lindsay is gonna take the time to explain that. She works tirelessly as a member and as a president to help us understand and learn about PMI. She wants to educate everybody, borrowers, taxpayers, lenders about PMI. She previously served as a director of PwC's public policy term and some of the cool things that I think they're cool that she did prior to that was she was actually a former member of the Senate Banking Committee staff as the Republican staff director for the Senate Banking Committee's National Security and International Trade and Finance subcommittees. Now that's a mouthful. She was also a um, senior policy uh, uh, advisor to Senator Mark Kirk from Illinois. And she has spent her career focusing on noteworthy banking, housing, financing reform, and a great deal of insurance litigation. I'm very excited to have this caliber of guest on our show. And I think you're really gonna learn a lot and you'll enjoy our conversation. So sit on back, grab your favorite beverage and enjoy the show. Hey, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you and your listeners. Oh, thank you so much. You know, we hear a lot of uh, our clients and our listeners ask questions often around your particular area of expertise, which is mortgages. And so I can't wait to get into the details of that. But first, I have, you know, a major, major question. And that's around my second passion in life and uh, wine. (laughs) Is there a particular wine that you love, that you enjoy, a brand, you know, a type of grape? So I will tell you in the last year, I have really fallen in love with sparkling wine, which is kind of boring, but I love a good, just dry brute is amazing. 
my other favorite that I recently discovered, kind of stumbled upon, is called Kilsetta Creek, which mm-hmm. is it's a Washington State wine. Um, their cab is amazing. So if you've not had it, I would highly, highly recommend it. I, I'm not usually a cab drinker. I like a big, bold wine, but they don't always go with a cab, but that one was fantastic. Yeah. We love tips and we love to explore all areas of the United States and beyond. Um, I'm just amazed at the regions that the um, U.S. is coming up with. Like who thinks that Texas has a major wine region, but they definitely (laughs) do. do. They do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Virginia has one. Michigan has a big one. Washington is well known for it. And Oregon, of course, and California, but in my, you know, home region of, of New York, but love tips, love specific tips like that. So can't wait to, to look around, see if I can't find it. And that's part of the fun for me is the journey of finding wine. Oh, absolutely. Um, people that know me when I'm talking about uh, what, you know, I'll often ask people, how did you form your vineyard? And they look at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about how a vineyard is formed, it's all of the influences that are in the air. And part of that is the journey of the influence, right? So you might have, um, you know, a particular wine in one region that is much bolder, much, much heavier than another region. And it's just because of what's in the air. And that's what our lives are like so much of what our lives are like. So I also think that as we age, we get better. So I think there's a a correlation. I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) So I would, I want people to understand your journey a little bit, your vineyard. So before we dig into your area of uh, professional expertise, would you mind sharing just a little bit about your history and how how you ended up in this career even and some neat little things along the way but <laughs> absolutely absolutely so um i always kind of joke that i i felt like a tumbleweed um through most of my career journey and i think you know for all being honest we've all probably kind of stumbled upon different things that we really either enjoyed or thought we wanted to pursue and didn't enjoy and so i tell people all the time it's you know it, curi- it really kind of takes this curiosity to learn you know, what am I interested in? And even those things that I'm not interested in. And then it takes sort of this perseverance to get good at that thing that you're interested in. And then it just takes constant, you know, perfecting that craft um, and preparation, frankly, to be prepared for those opportunities that come up. And that's been my journey is I've tested a lot of different things and, um, and I apologize for the background noise here, but uh, I've tested a lot of different things and really kind of, you know, found that uh, I have a, a real interest and a passion for mortgage finance of all things. I, I've kind of found myself landing in that career um, on that trajectory my entire career. And as hard as I've tried to actually get out a couple of times, I kind of find myself back in this space and policy. And I, you know, I've, I thought I wanted to be in politics and I thought I wanted to do several different things and I'm still in that world, but I really have found something that I'm truly passionate at, that I have, you know, an interest in and hopefully I'm, I'm good at (laughs) and I'm bringing some value in. Well, one of the things that I thought was really unique about when I read your bio and some of your background is that you actually were staff director for the Senate Baking Committee, um, National Security and International Trade and Finance Subcommittee. That, that's, first of all, a mouthful. Second of all, the influence that you get to have, when I talk about influences in the vineyard, the influences that you get to have by serving in that role and now working 
outside of that role. Tell us a little bit about that. And I, I, you know, how did you choose that? Well, you, it's so funny that you say this um, and you kind of describe it as it influences in the air, having such an impact on the wine. And that is such a great analogy. And when I think about my own career, uh, I have had these very fun and interesting sort of opportunities that have presented themselves. And each of them have kind of led me to this intersection between housing finance and, and policy work. But, you know, I will say, I mean, those opportunities where I've either, and a lot of it's been sort of a, a, um, a trial by fire and sort of you're in these opportunities, whether I was at a bank and we were going through the financial crisis and, you know, yeah, I'd love to dig in. And, and it was all mortgage <laughs> finance related. And obviously, you know, housing was sort of at the epicenter of the crisis and then going to the banking committee and getting the exposure to sort of how do we deal with coming out of this crisis now and how do we sort of move things forward? Um, and this subcommittee, you know, work that we were doing and sort of all the advancements that banking and, and mortgage finance could still benefit from some of those technology advancements, but all the evolution that's happening right now in banking all those experiences I really feel like have sort of prepared me and sort of cultivated me for where I am right now, leading a trade association that, you know, is, is focused on sort of the way forward for helping people have access to mortgage finance credit. Well, and, you know, even when you think about, uh, I'm going to step back because I did read in your bio that you were working in this profession during the economic crisis and a, a lot of, because you know, I work with a lot of Gen X women and men, but a lot more on the, on women's side. We all during that period of time were in the core crux of our career and often, often we're still recovering, even though it's 11 years later at this point in time, we're still recovering from that period of time because there was sort of a pause. Oh, even if we were still working, there was entirely. that pause, yes. right? I mean, we didn't get raises. We didn't get, we were lucky, quote unquote, to have a job in many cases. And that's outside of the mortgage and finance. Well, I was in the finance world, but outside the mortgage specific profession, what was it like to be in it? It was, and I hate to say this because um, I, I don't say it lightly. It was exciting and exhilarating. It was stressful. It was, um, I've learned, you know, it was the time that I learned the most was during and sort of right after the financial crisis. I think that's a time where, you know, everybody was figuring it out together. There was no playbook, if you will, for how to resolve, you know, Fannie and Freddie who needed a massive bailout, how to resolve. And I was at a a bank that was a bank for banks, essentially a federal home bank. It's another GSE like Fannie and Freddie. And, you know, we were dealing with issues we had never done you know, dealt with before on such a national scale and the hardship and, and the personal sort of um, perspective that this financial crisis in particular had, it was very difficult. And your, you know, your um, statement that it had such a, a lasting effect. A lot of people talk about today's millennials and sort of their hesitancy to get into the market. And so, you know, some of the perceptions that they've got about millennials and even about Gen Xers and and even baby boomers, that experience really kind of shaped how, and, and millennials in particular, they saw their parents either lose a home or lose a job and have to struggle, and their perception about sort of home ownership and maybe the need to wait, or 
the need, the just the need to wait, right? If they're, especially if your family had a difficult time uh, or lost their mortgage or any of those other factors that sort of influence your financial situation, it really has had a, an impact many, many years after the financial crisis. So, um, I think that you know we're finally kind of at a place where we're seeing past that. And, um, but the, but the perception and sort of how that shaped generations and individuals is you're spot on. It's, it's been, you know, um, a decade since, and we're still feeling it. Well, what's interesting about your point around that is a lot of people that, so Becky, um, Eason, one of our younger financial planners, she is a millennial and the clients that she's engaging with, they're terrified to buy a home. (laughs) I don't mean this is something that they they look at a home as a noose to some extent because they saw that particular crisis happen and they saw, you know, how it affected so many. And so mentally and and psychologically, they're equating home ownership with this, you know, emotional torture almost. I mean, I know I'm using really strong words, but, but it's, it's very common for people to say, I'm just going to rent. Like, I don't want right. that responsibility or I don't want that. Um, you know, if I lose my job, I don't want to have to go through a foreclosure or a short sale or, and many of them are exactly what you said. They've seen this happen. So, right. you know, they, they don't want to get caught in that environment. And so they're, they're worried about doing it or scared to do it. And, and yet at the same time, you know, they want the control of, right. of home ownership, which is very challenging, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So we've done so many studies here at USMI because, you know, this is our bread and butter. And initially, I think that there was um, not only just a reaction and the perception of home ownership among millennials, but now that you know, this age, age group is moving into that, um, that phase of their life where they've been working for several years. Mm-hmm. Many of them have one or maybe even two children. And we are seeing them kind of flock to the homeownership market in a little bit more of a steady, um, steady fashion than we've seen in the previous years. And I think one of the things that has really sort of um, tipped that is the fact that you've seen housing prices in some pockets of the country actually start to either you know, remain steady mm-hmm. or even, you know, slightly decline. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still in an, a, a, an appreciation state uh, at this moment across the country. I mean, there's a lot of appreciation still occurring, but it's not nearly what it was just a couple of years ago, two, three years ago. Meanwhile, rents are actually continuing to increase mm-hmm. um, at a much faster pace than home prices. And so I think folks kind of see this as an opportunity for them to get in. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you know, four or five years, six years within to your, uh, into your career and you are making some of those big life decisions, one thing that I think we've completely debunked is that at that stage in life, millennials have the same exact um, desires as generations before them. And we actually see, interestingly, we've we've seen some movement out into even some of the suburbs. So mm-hmm. purchasing mm-hmm. sort of the traditional single family home, uh, you know, after we've all done this massive development in the in the major metro markets. And I think that those markets will still have a, a, a you know a, a, um, an interest and allure for so many people. But we do see a lot of millennials moving out to the suburbs to buy that two, three, uh, you know, four bedroom home so that they can raise their family. And I think on the opposite side of that, so I think it goes in phases, right? So the millennial generation is actually bigger than the baby boomer generation. So as the baby right. boomer generation is starting to 
downsize and want less maintenance and, you know, want like a townhome or a condo or something like that, then you've got the, fortunately got the, um, you know, the, the millennial generation kind of coming in and, and taking up that space that's existing. That's right. And then I, and then I always joke about the forgotten generation, which is the next generation. <laughs> like, oh, where did that generation go? I know. Yeah, I can, I can flip on the screen. Yeah, yeah. I, I joke a lot about that because I, you know, we talk so much about the baby boomers and we talk so much about the millennial generation and they're big generations right. and they, they definitely affect consumerism. Yes. And so then, then you have those, those of us that are in that middle, the range, middle. Yeah, <laughs> that are really like, there was well, somewhere and yeah, there was, there were a couple in there that <laughs> yeah. my husband is right on the end of the baby boomer generation. He was born in 1964. So he technically is considered a, a baby boomer and I'm on the other side of, you know, the X generation. And, you know, what we're, we're um, observing from our friends is that their, their children are now growing up, you know, they're right. starting to empty nested and they're looking for opportunities to, to downsize and or relocate or different options. And so there really is a market in all three of those um, generations uh, there that we're is, talking yeah. about because um, and they're just diff- at different stages of their life. And a lot, especially the X and the, uh, ba- and the um, baby boomer, gen- or excuse me, the uh, millennial generation are not about so much stuff as they are about the adventure that experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about location and experience and what, when they're purchasing something, it's about what they're going to be close to and exposed to. Right. So when they're looking for houses now, I mean, like my husband and I have two locations. We live in the North uh, in the summer months and we live in the South in the winter months. And so when you look at our balance sheet, we're pretty house heavy. Yeah. And, and that's okay with us. Like that's the decision that we've made, but that gives us that opportunity to experience a lot of outdoor life year round. Yes. And that's really, really important to us. And yes. especially to me, if I don't get my sunshine, I'm grumpy. I yeah. need my sunshine. <laughs> I need my sunshine to grow my grapes. So that's right. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you said sort of there's this place for all these different generations and one of the things I think has been a hindrance, so to speak, and it's one of these lagging sort of effects of the financial crisis was baby boomers were staying in place. And so we've had this housing shortage across the country, which has really had such an, an enormous impact on home price appreciation because there's mm-hmm. just a scarcity of homes and we didn't have builders building enough homes to kind of keep you know pace with the demand. And so um, that movement, that movement, exactly what you're describing of sort of the baby boomer generation or even older generations than that moving out of their single family homes and moving into either condos or sort of moving mm-hmm. into the cities is making that starter home availability um, mm-hmm. and that supply issue available to millennials and to those who are just getting into the market, which is enormously important and helpful for affordability. So, you know, that's something else that is um, positive to see. Well, one of the things that I'd like to do, since I have your enormously knowledgeable brain sitting in front of me, as far as, um, opportunity to ask questions. Uh, a lot of people don't really understand some of the terminology that's used like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and first time home buyers and some of the military programs that are out there. So right. 
Um, and even the, the infamous PMI, the mortgage <laughs> right. insurance, you know. So yeah. walk us and 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 walk us through like down payment topics and some of the. I just like threw like seven questions at you all at once. No, but, those are good. Yeah, you know when we when we have a guest like you on the show, I so want to take the opportunity to take it down to the the definition level. So t- tell us some of that information. Sure. Well, I think first of all, you know, um, the information that you're sharing is so important and, you know, women, men, um, but in particular women, I would just say it's, it's so important that we do our homework. It's so important for us to be informed and not just Mm -hmm. to get it from somebody else, but really to do our, our homework and understand what is our best uh, options out there. And there are so many different low down payment options. I think one of the craziest things to me is sort of how complicated the, mm-hmm. um, the buying or the refinancing process can be. And having gone through it a couple of times, it's enormously frustrating that it, you know, it's, it's so jargon heavy and it can be a little bit complicated, but, you know, I think if we can kind of break it down, um, and, help people understand that they've got, they don't need 20% at a closing table. And that's what my industry is so passionate about is we know that, you know, 80% of first time home buyers this year use a low down payment option because there's a recognition that bringing 20% of an average home price, which is about $250,000 is a lot of money (laughs) for anybody, for anybody. (laughs) And you want to have savings in the bank and you want to have, you know, there's just some things that you really want to make sure you've got in order before you just plop down all of your um, savings into your home. And so, you know, there's private mortgage insurance and you can have as little as 3% down using private mortgage insurance. And, um, and you can, you know, attain your your home. Um, there's FHA, which is the government back uh, version of private mortgage insurance, and you can put as little as three and a half percent down. Now, one of the biggest distinctions between those two is that private mortgage insurance, once you reach about twenty percent equity in your home, private mortgage insurance automatically goes away; it cancels, and so you'll no longer have that payment. So your payment goes down over time, which is a really, um, you know, a huge benefit for so many homeowners. And FHA actually stays on for the life of the loan. But, you know, when you consider the fact that you were able to get into that home sooner than you otherwise could be, those are all options that and considerations that an individual should make. As I'm talking to, you know, to individuals about sort of, you know, how to think about their home purchase process and sort of what their best options might be, we really talk about things like, you know, have you thought about what you're paying in rent and how much more you're going to pay in rent over the last, over the next three to five years? Mm-hmm. Because that's, you know, between five and seven years is when private mortgage insurance goes away. So if it can help you get into your home sooner and then it goes away, you know, you may be better off going ahead and making that purchase without saving for that, you know, full 20% down um, versus waiting and paying that rent that, is likely to go up. How much in home price appreciation are you missing? And home price appreciation is fickle, but we've seen home price appreciation, you know, in, in the three to 4% range across the country over the last several years. So if you just use that as sort of a, a baseline and as sort of a conservative estimate, you are looking at quite a bit of appreciation in your home over the next five to 10 years that you may have sort of sat on the sidelines and missed out on. Um, and how much are home prices just appreciating that you're going to be 
you know, if you don't get in at a certain point, you're going to be chasing that moving target, constantly mm-hmm. trying to save that down payment for a, a more expensive product. And so all those things are considerations that we sort of advise folks to think about when they're making these different um, decisions. And what we have found, what's really amazing to me is that, you know, uh, over half of the individuals who were surveyed, who are non-homeowners currently, said that saving for the 20% down payment was their biggest obstacle to getting into a home. So it's almost just this lack of information or lack of understanding that you don't need that full 20% down to get into homeownership. That's, I think, one of the biggest things that we're trying to, you know, sort of educate folks on and make sure that there's an awareness about. So even taking it a step back, what is primary mortgage insurance? What is that PMI? Why do people even need it? That's an excellent question. So if you are a borrower coming to a lender and you're not going to put 20% down, you are not just viewed by the lender as a higher risk. You are a higher risk. There's a higher probability that there might be an issue with you. And so the lender would have greater exposure. So to take on that risk, people get private mortgage insurance. And we basically uh, protect the lender and enable the homeowner to have access to their uh, to their home through that lender because the lender is willing to take on the additional risk. So in that way, we sort of bridge that divide between um, an individual and what they can actually bring to the closing table in, in terms of a down payment and having access to um, conventional mortgage finance. And when a person needs PMI, like they need it because they want to put less than 20% down, are they obligated to go with whoever the financial institution is working with? Or can they go out and shop that? They or does it make a difference? They can go out and shop that. And oftentimes, you know, a lender will have, you know, the the um, the different options there, but there are definitely very competitive rates. The industry is very competitive. And if there is a cost savings to be had, I can assure you that, that, <laughs> that there is, the borrower will realize that. So one of the things that is interesting to me about that particular topic is that I there's very there's I think there's one other person that I've ever talked to about PMI and the fact that I think it was maybe five or six years ago I actually learned what I just asked you a question on that you know you don't have to go with whoever it's a financial institution they're going to tell you that you need it and they're going to give you a list of people that you you know, might want to pick to go with, or maybe they have a particular company that they work with, but it's like any other insurance. You can go out and you can purchase that on your own and have, and, and get quotes, just like you can get homeowner quotes and you can get auto quotes on insurance. You can actually go get your own insured. They, they might have, they might want to, or make it part of their policy that they've done their due diligence on that insurance company to make sure that it's a you know legitimate company or that kind of thing. But it is up to the home buyer to actually, to a certain extent, to actually be able to shop for that as well. Absolutely. And there you can ask, you know, the lender, let me see the different rates from the different companies. Um, I would suspect that the lender would want to give you the best rate anyway, or they're not going to be competitive, mm-hmm. but um, absolutely. It is, it is absolutely the, the consumer who benefits from sort of understanding the different options that are out there. So let's let's put in perspective somebody who we were talking about millennials. So let's just focus on them for a quick second. They're um, 
you know, they, they probably have student loans. They probably have, um, maybe some consumer debt or some auto debt or something like that. And they want to, they want to get out of the renter's world, or maybe they want to be in a co-op or a condo or a townhome or something, but they want to own the property that they're living in because maybe they want to paint the walls a particular color. You know, it's a sense of security and safety. They actually own something, but they have, you mentioned 3% or 3.5% down. So they've saved that much for the purchase. What other things should they be doing to qualify for a mortgage? Those are, I mean, these are some of the, the most important questions, right? And to be home ready is what we call it. You know, a borrower really needs to understand sort of what their different uh, down payment options are and what different mortgage options are available to them. They need to understand their own financial health. So understanding how their credit score impacts their ability to get into a mortgage at a favorable rate, um, what they're, you know, what they can bring to the down uh, to the closing table in terms of a down payment, um, all the different kind of aspects that go into, um, you know, attaining your first mortgage. So there's going to be a lot of documentation about, you know, where you work and sort of your credit history. So knowing that going into it and sort of being prepared for that, cause it's a little bit of a paperwork load, but, but understanding that that is coming, um, and how you're, if you need to improve your credit score, maybe it's not that you're not home ready, you know, not that you're not going to get a home, but maybe it's just not right now. Maybe you want to wait to improve your credit score a little bit so that you have a favorable rate because those rates really have a, a significant impact on your purchase price and your um, ability and your purchase power. Um, and, you know, we've actually um, sort of cooled some of this information in a website called lowdownpaymentfacts.com. We, you know, tried to uh, really kind of find some of the best resource, not resources, not just through USMI, but through different mm-hmm. um, resources that exist out there and sort of put them in one place. And so consumers can go, your listeners can go to lowdownpaymentfacts.com and really kind of get a better understanding about sort of what, um, you know, uh, financial sort of health they need to be in, in order to get the most favorable terms for first mortgage. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes. But one of the things that I have as a follow-up question to that is when you're thinking about ratios, we we talked about, we do a lot of ratio work with our clients because they like to see like, um, or we like to show them maybe that's, but then once we show them, they like to see it going in the future. Um, what is the typical top amount of con- like total debt that a, a lender generally wants to keep somebody's overall budget into? And then specifically, how much of that do they like to try to keep under the homeowner side of things? So um, you're asking really great questions. So uh, an important kind of consideration and rule that came out after the financial crisis was um, something called the qualified mortgage rule. And basically, one of the most important aspects of that rule is ensuring that a consumer has an ability to repay their loan. And if you think about that just at its face value, it's how much debt do you have and how much income do you have coming in the door? Mm-hmm. And that ratio in in um, this qualified mortgage rule was set at 43%. Now, it's not a magic number and there's nothing that says if you go above that, that, you know, you're a terrible borrower or below that, you're going to be the best borrower, but it does sort of, it is indicative of sort of an ability to repay. And so there, um, 
you know, that is something that I think a lot of lenders want to kind of stick to is sort of in that range of 43%. We do see borrowers through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the government sponsored enterprises, and they guarantee loans that come through lenders. They basically stand behind those loans to end investors, but they set some of their own standards for these different things. And we've seen over the last, you know, five or six years that borrowers can have a little bit higher um, DTI, debt to income ratio, mm-hmm. and still be really good credit quality borrowers. So, but knowing that sort of going into it and also just knowing what you're personally comfortable with. I know you know, me and my husband really had this conversation about, are we comfortable going up to 43%? Maybe mm-hmm. we're not. Mm-hmm. And what is that threshold where we're comfortable? Um, you know, there's a, there are certain limits that I think that just from a bank per, a lender's perspective or a, a regulator's perspective, there may not be a comfort and making sure that the borrower has the ability to repay. But each individual should also have that conversation as a family unit and say, what are we comfortable? What's, what's our threshold where we would feel, you know, comfortable borrowing up to? And, um, you know, is our mortgage being part of those, that debt calculation is, mm-hmm. th- does that keep us within that comfortable threshold? Mm-hmm. And often when people do rent, we, we, even though it's not a mortgage, we'll look at that and say, okay, here's what your ratio is based on your housing expenses. Yes. So this is what you pay in rent. And then if you were to purchase, okay, here's what your principal and interest and possibly your PMI and your taxes and your insurance. And we'll even go as far as to say, if it's an older house, you know, to make sure That's to expensive. keep some kind of, you know, residual money aside, put the, put like a payment aside for any big replacements that might need to take place. Yes. Right. So, and that's one of the risks that we often look for when somebody's looking at a house, uh, they might look at the price but they w- will coach them to look at what the possible replacement uh, options are going to be, or, you know, is the roof, is the roof 25 years old. Right. So yeah, the price is good, but you're going to have to put, you know, 10 or that 10,000 to $15,000 immediately into this house when you have very little equity. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. you know, you may be, may be better off to spend $5,000 on a new house right. <laughs> or a house that has a newer roof because net you're actually going to be more positive. And, and we run those ratios for those clients that are asking some of those questions as well. So I was curious to see, uh, you know, where as an industry that has gone. And I know that, you know, that was a big, that was a consequence of the housing crisis was that many people were paying, first of all, adjustable rate loans. Yes. And when the rates got adjusted, right, the payment was more than what they could do. Or in some cases, I know people were paying interest only loans. Yes. And so then when the value of the house dropped so much, they were significantly underwater and they didn't think of it as a home. Right. They thought of it as an investment and when, you know, and ended up walking away because they were only paying interest. And sometimes they didn't understand that that's what they were right. doing. Um, you know, and then there were other situations where people had to relocate and the value had dropped so significantly that they ended up doing. Yeah. 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 So I, I know, I know kind of basically why that ratio was set to a certain extent, but there's also, um, there's also programs out there that can help. Like you mentioned Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. What, 
what would people, how do people even, where do they go to find out what they'd even be eligible for? So I think one of the most important places to start is sort of doing online research. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. I mentioned the lowdownpaymentfacts.com. There's other mm-hmm. resources. Um, but, you know, your lender is a really good place to start. And sitting down with your lender and understanding sort of what are their requirements for me to sort of borrow at the most advantageous rates. And the lender will likely walk you through, you know, for FHA, here are the different mortgage options. So you can have as little as 3% down. You're going to have a, a, a premium that you're going to have to pay, just like you have to pay for mortgage insurance and it stays on for the life of the loan. Uh, you know, you're going to have um, you know, there's different loan limits that are involved with FHA loans and mm-hmm. with Fannie and Freddie mm-hmm. loans. So those are kind of the back end sort of mechanics of, you know, understanding the mortgage finance system, but they, they impact sort of a borrowers, a consumers, um, you know, their, their choices. And for a consumer mm-hmm. to sort of understand a little bit, just, you know, what are the different options? You don't have to st- understand all the different, you know, um, uh, you know, secondary market terms, but you really need to understand how do these different, um, what are these different options in the market and what do they mean to me and what are all the different variables? So the, I mentioned, you know, one private mortgage insurance cancels. Are you going to, mm-hmm. are you planning to be in your home for more than five to seven years? Because if so, mm-hmm. then that might be something that you really want to consider. If you're thinking, you know, mm-hmm. I'm only going to be here for a short time and, but I want, you know, I want to have homeownership and I'll move. And that's a consideration that you can also take into account. But those are the things that I don't know that the lenders mm-hmm. always fully explain. And so having mm-hmm. an understanding of that going into that closing table is really critically important. Ask the lender, ask the lender, look, this is, this is my current rate. If I had a, a FICO of, you know, in that next bucket, maybe I'm a good credit score, but if I'm a great credit score, an exceptional credit score, what would my rate be? Um, asking different questions about the different products that lenders offer. There was, there was, when I last went and purchased my last home, there was a, a product I had never heard about um, and it's it called a recast where you can actually put more money down and you probably know about this, but I was unaware and I've been in this market for a long time, but uh, you can put more money down and it goes directly to your, your principal balance without having to refinance your rate stays the same. So Mm -hmm. all these things are, you know, really um, they benefit the consumer. It just is important for the consumer to sort of know the different options that are out there. And I think, you know, from, from our perspective, understanding sort of you don't need to wait on the sidelines necessarily mm-hmm. to save up for that full down payment and understanding what the different implications of waiting might be is, I think, something that, you know, most consumers should understand before they um, make, the, uh, make a decision of that magnitude. Mm-hmm. And and so you and I have talked a little bit about the fact that you know there's there's definitely good information out there. There's probably some information that people want to be careful about as mm-hmm. well. How about on the predatory side? What are some signs of you know predatory behavior? Um, things that people should say. Mm, I think I'm walking away from this couple things. Um, and I, I will speak from my own personal experience, even before the financial crisis, when, you know, I mean, if you're working in the government, if you're, you're not making a lot of money oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And we, my husband and I would go to look at homes just for fun. We had no intention of ever, you know, of buying, we weren't prepared. I think we were dating at that time. And if it sounds too good to be true, it is. 
And so if someone is promising you can get into this home that you know in your heart is probably outside of your means, it's it's probably too good to be true. So I think that it just, you know, a lot of people look for like this sinister activity, but a lot of times it's like, if it seems too good to be true, you really need to do a little bit of extra due diligence and ask questions and ask different lenders and get different quotes. Um, you know, really asking questions about sort of the company that you're doing business with is also critically important because, you know, um, I think if folks had done a little bit of homework pre-crisis and understood what companies were offering mm-hmm. some of these different products, uh, maybe people would have thought differently about doing business with them. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. you know, I think that those are two of the most important things. And then the third and final thing, and I've already said it is have some of that education under your belt before you go to that closing table. Because if somebody is telling you something that doesn't seem to mesh with what you've read and understand to be the case, then you need to, you know, do a little bit more due diligence and you need to question that and ask questions. I've actually Mm -hmm. had a lender tell me something about, about private mortgage insurance when I was going through this process that was completely inaccurate and I had to correct them like twice. I said, that's not accurate. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm in the business, so it's a little bit different. But I do think that knowing, you know, at least just a baseline of information on the different options. And if something doesn't sound right, ask a question and ask again and go get a second quote. All those things are very Yeah, important. go get a second quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I want people to understand too, because, I, I, you know, a lot of times I've heard people say, about negative things about the primary mortgage insurance side of things. And, and it is an added expense, but they've had, you know, like, a, it's almost like a frustrating, I've got to pay this stupid mortgage insurance, you know, this primary mortgage insurance. Explain to the listeners how this actually, I mean, other than the fact that it lets them get in the house earlier, but explain to the listeners how, how mortgage insurance actually does help them. Well, I think the first point is just what you said, which is you get into the you get into your home a little bit sooner than you otherwise would be able to. And we've done a lot of research on down payments and the average time that it could take somebody to save for a down payment. So the average cost of a house across the country is about $262,000. And if you think about sort of a 20% down payment, right? Who's got 40 plus thousand dollars to save on a home, actually closer to $50,000 to save for a home. Um, and if you if you think about the average wage of a firefighter or a school teacher, you know we've estimated it can take those individuals about 20 years to save for that home. Now nobody really usually waits that long, right? Because most people kind of figure out that they can do something sooner than that. But again, mm-hmm. this gets back to that earlier example where you know we've looked at individuals who, based on that average cost of the of the median um, cost of the home across the country, based on the average salary based on the average home price appreciation rates, how much that individual could save uh, over the cost of their mor- over the life of their mortgage, both in home appreciation mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. just in rent and looking at those two mm-hmm. things. And I think it is just eye-opening to individuals when they see that. that we have calculators um, actually on the slowdownpaymentfacts.com. We've got calculators that are extremely, it's all for the consumer. It's extremely consumer friendly. So you can put in and customize. This is how much the home is I'm looking for. This is how much I make. It's, and none of this goes to anywhere other than just to you. It's not going into <laughs> some you know lenders so that they can call you and say, this is what I've got for you. It's just for you. And it's a sliding scale. And you can say, this is how much I can save. Realistically, I can save this much money a month for a down payment. And it'll tell you how long mm-hmm. it's going to take you to save for 20%. 
it can tell you how much your payment would be if you are saving just for 5% and how you know, long you'll be paying mortgage insurance. So those tools, I mean, we didn't have those five or 10 years ago. We didn't have those tools. Right, right. And, and today's consumer can be so much better informed. And those, you know, those longer term um, decisions and sort of understanding how much you can save and potentially gain in home price appreciation uh, those are things that I think that, you know, are super valuable for and value add that the industry brings to the consumer. Yeah. Well, I, I am so thank you so much for spending uh, your time today explaining a lot of these topics to us and the valuable resources that you're providing. I, I do want to switch gears for just a quick second, because whenever I read in somebody's bio that they're involved in women and finance in yes. any way, I always get excited because uh, as a woman who has been in finance for over 25 years, you know, we're still stuck in the, the percentage of women that are actually pursuing finance in any given way. And I did notice in your background that you um, are a director on the board and the immediate past president of women in housing and finance. And so I Googled the organization because I've, I've actually never heard of it, to be honest. So I Googled the organization to find out a little bit more about it. And for people that are listening uh, that are interested in exploring areas of finance or career changing, I would just say, you know, check out the website. It's uh, www.whfdc.org is a resource for people to get familiar with the profession. And I'm just, you know, again, I'll let you speak a little bit about that, but um any opportunity that I ever get to promote more women in finance, I'm always going to take it. We have to collaborate. I tell you what, and I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, it's a huge passion of mine. You know, we've got to collaborate together. And I, you know, I sort of stumbled upon this group um, and it was during the financial crisis and I needed to understand an issue and I didn't really have anybody. I didn't have somebody who could sort of guide me in this specific issue area. And this group, it's a nonprofit and, and it was originally set up because they weren't allowed into an all men's group here in DC. And so they set it up and it's open to women and men. But we had the chair of the FDIC, uh, Yelena McWilliams, come and speak to us yesterday. And it's just an amazing forum where we get to ask questions and talk about issues of the of, of the day and industry issues and compare notes. And you've got regulators and you've got you know industry and policymakers and different stakeholders and consumer groups, all that belong. And there's no agenda. Nobody's out trying to kind of sell something. It's just truly a forum where we get together as as mostly women and learn and educate each other and, and um, kind of collaborate together, which is extremely exciting. So um, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's a wonderful organization and a great resource. And I think for people that are exploring other careers, we I have a fairly large mass of um, women attorneys that I actually work with. And uh, it started out as, you know, working with a few and I turned around one day and said, wow, like half of my clients are female attorneys and they have a very large burnout yeah. rate because of the pressures that are put on them and the demands of work and life and often are looking to change careers, um, especially in their mid 40s, but they want to use their law background and their knowledge. And so I'm always, con- you know, trying to like, 
point them in finance <laughs> world. Finance yes. direction. We need more. <laughs> like, you know, you'd be great financial planners. Yes. You know, you'd be great in your profession and what you're doing, and in any any role that legal background really makes you better at what you do. So I just wanted to give mention to that for, um, you know, some of the listeners that are, are just trying to figure out, um, potentially a career change that this is an avenue that they could go explore and maybe, you know, chat with other women that are in this profession and, and see if it's an area that they'd even be, um, you know, consider doing some, volunteer work in to get to know better or, you know, talk to other women that are in that profession and see what it's like. So, um, I did want to mention that and I appreciate that you took some time to talk about that. Um, and, and I love, there's just a few final questions and I apologize for keeping you just a little bit longer, but, um, I love to ask, and I've got a new question. So you're the first guest to answer this question. (laughs) But as I mentioned to you, I think prior to starting to record, one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of people about is fermenting. And what I mean by fermenting is instead of having to do it all, Instead of having to crush every goal that, you know, and be better at everything, let's take some time to ferment, to allow ourselves to develop uh, smoothly or boldly or whatever our natural uh, personality is, let it ferment. Um, so my question to you is, what do you do? to make sure that you have time to ferment? So I think one of the most important things that, um, that I can, you know, that I do is I run and I try to meditate a little bit. And um, mm-hmm. I was just reading a, a, an article and, and there's a recent book. I'm trying to, I'll try to remember the name. I wish I had looked it up. Um, but there's a recent book that's um, all about how meditation sort of renews your mind. And gives you the focus and the clarity. And I think, you know, for me, I get a little bit of that when I run or I exercise, but just taking that time for you personally and whatever that might be. But I think meditation, you know, no matter what your, what sport or activity you enjoy, if you can take five minutes of meditation, 10 minutes of meditation, there are so many benefits of sort of helping um, an an individual sort of focus and prioritize and kind of um, be able to sort of realize, you know, what's uh, what they need to be focused and and paying attention to. And so I think for me, that's been one of those areas where I've kind of grown um, and it's a chance for me to sort of ferment and uh, take a look at things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For a lot of people that don't know this, when wine is shipped to you as an example, um, if they're, if they're smart, they will tell you, the shipper will tell you, let the bottle yes. rest. Don't let it come to your house, immediately open a bottle, let the bottle rest, set it on its side and let it rest because the jarring motion within that bottle of wine being shipped will change the dynamics of right. that wine. And like, that like the like the bottle like the everything that's being thrown at us at any given time if we're constantly being shook up we aren't going to have the best flavor coming right. out of us so um so the meditation and the running although running is you know more of shaking your body but it's settling yeah. your soul settling your mind and it's letting you rest at peace 
um, great way to ferment. So thank you for sharing that. And the very final question that I have for you is, um, and I talk a lot about like, um, to people about what their definition of success is. And for, for some clients, I'm asking them like, well, they're saying to me, I want to make sure I can retire. And I'll say, well, what does retirement look like for you? So what would a successful retirement be? When they look, when I ask that question, they're like, well, I don't know, really? (laughs) I'm not working at this job anymore. I'm like, okay, but what does that mean? Like, do you go to another job? Do you, you know, want to volunteer? What do you want to do in retirement? And as we talk through those sort of ideas that they have and the realism of their ideas starts coming out of them, you know, then, then when we're planning, we can always go to that particular topic. And what you said, this is what you want to do. So, you know, this is how it relates to finances. So I love to hear what other people define as success to them. That is, it's such an important question, right? Because I feel like, um, and really I've only done this in the last probably five years because you get on the hamster wheel and you just go. And I really kind of had to pause about two years ago and said, okay, for me, I don't want to have that moment where in 50 years or whatever, however long I sit there and say, what, is, you know, I'm finally here. So to me, success would be enjoying every stage. So I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've had uh, lost and I've loved, uh, you know, lost loved ones that um, died way too young and I don't want to have that happen. So I think planning financially so that I can enjoy every stage of life and then hopefully not succeeding at the things that don't matter. And I have, you know, I think we're all guilty of this, but we chase things and we, yeah. you know, we're do- going, 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 and then kind of look up yeah. and are like, wait, what are we doing? Um, and so just kind of maintaining that focus on why are we here and why do we do this? And if we're not enjoying it, why do it? Right. Yeah. No. And, you know, we talk about not comparing ourselves to the Joneses, which is very really hard. hard sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's very hard. Um, you know, and, and that's why I said I'm going to stop. Like, I hear a lot of people. In fact, uh, I asked, I was working with a coach and she said, you know, ask some people that you work with, like what they see as a success for you, especially because I, I have a hard time looking back at like saying, oh, I was successful at this. I'm always looking at the future and saying, I'm planning for for this. And I guess that's somewhat of a occupational hazard, but the, I was asking people this, this past fall, like, so what do you think, you know, what would you say that I was successful at that year? And they're like, Oh man, you're crushing it. You're doing this and you're that. Like, I don't feel like I'm crushing it. (laughs) (laughs) Why, why, why is there this perception that I'm crushing it when in reality, I'm just hamster rolling it, like you said, you know, I mean, I'm doing really cool things that I'm excited about and I'm taking care of my clients the way that I'm supposed to be. But at times I feel like I'm on this wheel and I, and I came to this realization that a lot of it was because I was doing the should ofs, like you should be doing this and you should be doing that and you should be doing, and I'm like, (laughs) done. I am not going to do that anymore because maybe you should be doing it. That's right. I shouldn't. And I'm going to stop letting people tell me I should be doing something. If I want to do it and I think that it's beneficial for my clients or my family, then I'll do it. But I've got to stop looking at what everybody else is doing and shooting myself. Well, and your question about the fermentation and like you get that realization, you know, 
once you sit and you're just quiet and you process and you say, am I doing what I enjoy? Because when you're going, going, it's sometimes hard to really remember why you're doing what you're doing. So, yeah. 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 Well, again, Lindsay, thank you so thank much for you. being on the show today. Uh, I will have some information in the show notes about where people can reach out to you, how Would they love can that. contact you, some information about uh, USMI so that if they do have some questions, they can go to the website and, and get um, get some additional information. But thank oh, you thank so much you. for taking an hour out of your day and sharing with our listeners so much information. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Amy. And I enjoyed it and welcome any questions or feedback. Thank you. And that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dime. You can contact Amy through the website www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rootedpg for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. Don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.